This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast. I am Hal Hammonds and I am a citizen of heaven and I am your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. I bring you this message of hope today from Pensacola, Florida. This is report number 15, dated July 16th in the year of our Lord, 2019. I bid God's grace and peace to all my fellow sojourners here in this earthly plane. I remain sound in body, alert in mind, and energized in spirit. I'm pleased to bring you this report of my recent labors in the Lord. Here's the synopsis. I've been preaching about the evolution of Christians. Christians beget Christians after their kind, just like dogs and cats, but there is a limit to the diversity that this process will allow. I've been reading How to Lead When You're Not in Charge by Clay Scroggins. It's difficult to command when you're not at the head of the table, but you can be a good example from any seat. I've been hearing the 50th anniversary of the moon landing is approaching. Imagine how famous Neil Armstrong's words would be if we'd heard what he was actually trying to say. I've been playing Yokohama. Both in the game and in life, your ability to act effectively depends on the trail of influence you leave behind. Are you ready? Here we go. This is what I've been preaching. Animals and plants reproduce after their kind. This goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. We are told with regard to plants, with regard to animals, it works with humans too. I've known that up close and personal for 23 and a half years now. We re reproduce after our kind. That is the way that humanity is designed. That's the way the world is designed. We'll get into a discussion about atheistic evolution and the problems that Genesis 1 provides with regard to that theory some other time. Right now we want to focus on this idea of begetting after your own kind, and particularly with regard to the gospel and to the production of Christians, because the same process works in the spread of the gospel as it does in the animal kingdom and in the plant kingdom and in humanity. The gospel produces Christians that cannot possibly produce anything else. If you plant a, an acorn, it's going to produce an oak tree or it's going to produce nothing at all. And that's the way that it is with the gospel. The gospel produces Christians, if anything. Sometimes it falls in soil that's not suitable and doesn't grow, but when it does grow, it produces a Christian. It is the power of God and the salvation to everyone who believes, the text says in Romans 1 verse 16. The Great Commission that Jesus gave to his disciples in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, told them to go and make disciples of all men. And the way they did that was by preaching to them the same gospel that Jesus had given to them. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I commanded you, he says. This is how we can have confidence that the same gospel message that produced Christians in the first century will continue to produce Christians today. It's the, the purity of the gospel, the simplicity of the gospel. But it doesn't always work. Now, understand, when it doesn't work, it's our fault. It's not the gospel's fault. It's not God's fault. It's not Jesus' fault. It's our fault because we corrupt the gospel. We do not preach it in its purity and its simplicity. Now, God will be the judge of us all in, in such matters. But we as imperfect human beings will sometimes get things wrong in our efforts to preach the gospel. Sometimes it's out of ignorance. Sometimes it's out of deliberate deceit. But one way or the other, we mess things up. And we have to understand that at some point during this process, and again, God determines these things, at some point it ceases to be the gospel. And when it ceases to be the gospel, it ceases to have the effect that God had designed. You can't have some other seed grow a Christian. It has to be this seed, the one gospel. 
not the different gospel that was being preached in the churches of Galatia that Paul talks about in Galatians 1, verses 6 through 9. The one who preached that gospel, that corrupted gospel, was accursed. The men who had followed after that gospel had fallen from grace, the text says in chapter 5, verse 4. So this is important stuff. Paul writes in 1 Timothy, uh, 2 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse number 3 and following. As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on in Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation, rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. He's saying here that these purveyors of the fake gospel were not pleasing to God. They were not doing God's work. They may have said they were doing it. They may have thought they were doing it. But nevertheless, it was not true because it was not the gospel. The same church in Ephesus that Paul is addressing here in Timothy, a generation later, Jesus Christ addresses him through the, the pen of the Apostle John and tells them in a letter in Acts chapter 2, verse 5, that their candlestick was going to be taken away, their lampstand was going to be taken away if they did not repent and return to do the first deeds. If they behaved as they once did, following after the true gospel that they learned from Paul and from other preachers, other inspired men, they if they did that, they could be saved. But as it stood, they were on the path to destruction. They were on the path to being lost. We cannot afford to allow that to happen in our life. We, in our life, we must allow the gospel to remain pure and untainted to the best of our ability, at least. Now, we, we pray to God for wisdom. We pray to God for, for guidance and to empower us to know the spirits, to help us discern the spirits. The text says in 1 John 4, verse 1, that we're to test the spirits to see if they're from God. We need to be doing that on a regular basis to know what the true gospel is, commit ourselves to defending it. Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse number 12, for this reason I also suffer these things, for I am not ashamed, but I am not ashamed, for I know who I am, whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I've entrusted to him until that day. Retain the standard of sound words, which you've heard from me, in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. Going through verse number 14 there. It is imperative for our sake, for the sake of those who hear, and for succeeding generations, that we maintain the purity of the gospel that has been given to us. Read your Bible. Know what the Bible says. Defend what it actually says. Put our own opinions, our traditions, all to the side. And trust only what Jesus Christ is telling us through his word. That is the seed of the gospel. Any other seed is impossible, incapable of producing Christians. On the other hand, the true gospel will produce a Christian every single time that it takes root in the heart of a believer. Have confidence in the gospel. Have confidence in the Bible. Have less confidence in ourselves. Less confidence in human beings. Anyway, that's what I've been preaching. This is what I've been reading. Tom Watson, former IBM CEO, is quoted as saying, nothing so conclusively proves a man's ability to lead others as what he does on a day-to-day -day basis to lead himself. He's quoted by Clay Scroggins in Clay's book, How to Lead When You're Not in Charge. This is a book that I knew virtually nothing about. I stumbled across it and I was drawn to the title. And it's an interesting read. 
I was drawn to the title because I find myself in that sort of position. I am not what the world would typically call a pastor, although I'm referred to as a pastor from time to time. Uh, there are aspects of the biblical role of pastor that I carry out, but not in a First Peter chapter 5, verse 2 sort of way. I do not shepherd for the souls of the local members at East Hill. I am a preacher. I preach the gospel. I work under the oversight of shepherds, under the oversight of elders. They are the ones who direct the flock in the way that they should go. And I, I'm fortunate that they regard my judgment. They regard my, my experience and they consult with me with various things, but they do not bow to my whim. I do not have final say. I don't have to have any say. They're the ones who are directing things. That can be a frustrating arrangement as anyone who has ever answered to somebody else can tell, especially people who answer to others and are yet expected to be leaders. Uh, Claire Scroggins' book is designed to help people in that sort of position find ways to guide others, to lead from not necessarily in the front. And uh, the book is, is far too big for me to get into any specifics, uh, a lot of specifics anyway, but I do want to talk a little bit about this idea of leading as an example that he talks about that Tom Watson's quote, not the golfer, the CEO uh, alludes to being able to be faithful in what Jesus calls a little. Luke chapter 16, verse 10 says, the one who's faithful a little is faithful also in much. When we have custody over our own souls, our own behavior, our own families, we can show in that small area whether or not we are responsible, whether we are, whether or not we are useful in God's service in that little thing. That doesn't necessarily reflect positively when we're able to succeed in the small thing. But if we're failing in the small thing, what does that say in our, about our ability to succeed in the big thing? That's why deacons are supposed to be tested, the text says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, before they are appointed as deacons. That's why uh, elders are supposed to have a good reputation, especially with regard to their family, how they're guiding their family. That shows a little bit, at least, about their character, about their ability, about their skill set, about their capacity for leadership. Testing them in the little thing is an example of how they might perform in the big thing. If we are to be examples, regardless of what your position happens to be in the church, whether you are an 80-year-old elder in the church, whether you're a 16-year-old new convert or anywhere in between, the best thing that you can do is to be the best example that you can possibly be yourself. Model what it takes to be a follower. That may seem a little bit counterintuitive, but I think that Mr. Scroggins is, is on the, uh, the right track with regard to this. The best way you can train yourself to be a leader is to learn what it properly means to be a follower and to follow after Jesus, of course, first and foremost. Follow after local leadership. Find mentors. Follow after them. Imitate them as they're imitating Christ, as the text says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. Realizing, of course, that mentors are going to fail. Mentors are going to have weaknesses and flaws other than Jesus Christ himself. But by learning how to follow, we train ourselves a little bit about how to lead. The text says in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse number 12, after having said that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, he warns Timothy that, that trouble is on the horizon from the inside, from Christians. He says, but evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things you've learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, Paul and, and other teachers, and that from childhood, that is his mother and grandmother, 
From childhood, you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that which leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Ultimately, all of our instruction, all of our guidance needs to be coming from God, from God's word. And when we have confidence in God's word and allow it to guide us, and allow others to shepherd us in our application of God's word, always under the tutelage of Jesus Christ, ultimately, then we can put ourselves in position not only where we can be effective ourselves and in our immediate community, but also we can grow in our ability to lead others in their efforts to do the same thing. Being an example is what being a Christian is all about. And that includes being a young Christian, by the way. Uh, people who sometimes feel like their only role in the church is to be a good young person, to be the future of the church or, or some such thing as that. I, I kind of cringe when I hear us talking about the young people being the future of the church, like they're not part of the present of the church. They're absolutely part of the present, a vital part of the present, uh, maybe an underutilized or undervalued part of the present. Nevertheless, regardless of how you as a young person, potentially a young person, uh, no matter how you're being used or misused in the Lord's church, your role is to lead from where you are. Your role is to be the best Christian you are wherever you happen to be. Paul tells Timothy this very thing in chapter 4, the first letter. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, uh, chapter 4 rather, in verse number 11 and following, prescribe and teach these things. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather than speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. Look like a Christian at all times, because ultimately somebody's going to be looking to you. Somebody's going to be admiring you. Somebody's going to be emulating you. You may not realize it. They may be younger than you. They may be older than you. They may be sitting next to you in the pew, whoever they happen to be, though. When you purpose in your heart to be the best Christian you possibly can be, you are being a leader. You may not have a title. You may not have some kind of public responsibility, but you are leading people, whether you realize it or not. And the more effective we can be at leading from the rear, as it were, leading simply by being a good example, the more prepared we're going to be to lead in bigger and more public capacities in the future. This goes for, for men, for women, for young people, for older people. It doesn't matter. The best thing you can ever do is to be the best example that you possibly can be. And then being the good example, we can go out and have a positive influence on other people. And one day we'll be asked to lead in a greater capacity than we already are. If we do a good enough job in the little thing, then perhaps we'll be ready to do the greater job as well when that time comes. Anyway, that's what I've been reading. This is what I've been hearing. It was 50 years ago this month that that grainy black and white footage first arrived on television sets all over the world. And those magical words appeared on the screen, Armstrong on Moon. And we heard him say those famous words, that's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. I don't know how many times I have watched that footage and heard that voice come across the screen 
and then it flips usually to Walter Cronkite sitting in the studio, and he imitates those words again, saying them again for our benefit. That's one small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind. Except that's not what he said, or at least that's not what he intended to say. Word came back eventually later that Armstrong had messed up his line. Either he had spoken poorly or spoken incorrectly one way or the other. He had intended to say, that's one small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind, which may sound like a pretty insignificant change until you start thinking about it. One small step for a man is putting Armstrong in his proper place in that entire process. For eight years or more, the human race had been trying to put a man on the moon. And the simplest step that was ever taken by any individual that entire process was that one that Armstrong took out of Lunar Lander. All he had to do is step out and hit the ground. A small step indeed. But by taking that step, he advanced the entire human race from one era into another. We became a species that had walked on the moon. Not just Armstrong, but all of us. Truly a giant leap for mankind. It's amazing what small little things like that can do. One small step for man. Man is being used as a synonym for mankind, basically. The sentence doesn't make any sense. It's nonsensical. One small step for a man. One giant leap for mankind. Articulate. That is the message for the day. Articulate. And maybe it's inappropriate for me to cast aspersions on one of the most famous men in the world. Me who just stumbles over his words on a regular basis every week on this podcast. Telling people to articulate. But the fact of the matter is, we as human beings, and particularly we as Christians, have an obligation not only to speak, or even to speak the right things, but to speak them correctly, speak them appropriately, speak them in a way that can be best heard or best understood, one that connotes the proper feelings, one that connotes the proper attitude of heart. It is not enough to simply intend to say the right thing. We need to actually say the right thing, and beyond that, say it with the right kind of spirit. I love the book of Colossians. I refer to it a lot. I'll refer again to Colossians chapter 4, verse number 2. Paul writes, Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been in prison, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of your opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Paul talking about his his own speech first, and then the speech of the brethren there in Colossae, as they would go to those who were lost, those who were on the outside, and make the most of the opportunity to try to season their speech with salt. That's what he was trying to do. He was asking them to pray for him, that he would not only be given opportunity to speak, but also the boldness to speak properly, and the wisdom to speak appropriately. And that's an important lesson for us as Christians today, as we are trying to speak words of salvation to those who are on the outside, to speak with boldness and timeliness, certainly, to make sure that, that the things that we do and say are carried on to future generations. If we, we've been talking about 
about passing the word on and preserving the word properly, speaking it accurately. Tell the next generation what God's word is and tell it uh, firmly and, and boldly and accurately so that they will know what the word is, so that they will be in best position to carry it out in their own lives. We need to be bold in our speech. Paul writes about that here. We need to be understood in the things that we are saying. All things are supposed to be done for edification. All things are supposed to be done for the benefit of those who are hearing. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 14 verse 23 about how it would be if everyone would speak in a tongue and nobody would interpret those tongues. Back then, uh, some people were being moved by the Holy Spirit to speak in a foreign language and others being moved to interpret. At least sometimes they were, but not always. Well, what's the outsider going to think if he comes in here and everybody's speaking some foreign language? He's going to think you're all crazy, he says. That's not edifying to anybody. That's not. It's edifying to the one who's speaking, of course, because he feels the Spirit moving in him. That's great. But nobody else is being served. And surely the bigger issue when we are speaking the words of God is that we are impacting other people for good, that we are bringing other people closer to the word. So we need to make sure that we are understood when we speak. I would like to think that especially brothers and sisters in Christ would try to give us a little bit of patience, a little bit of, of compassion and understanding, especially if you don't have a whole lot of, of experience in public speaking. Uh, I, I shuddered. I'm glad there's not any video evidence of my, my first public speech. I'm sure it was just absolutely awful, even worse than this. And the brethren supported me and loved me and, and nurtured me through all of that, as they should have done. That That's entirely appropriate. But you're not going to get that same kind of consideration oftentimes by people from people who are on the outside. So we need to make sure that when we do speak, we speak accurately and in a way that can be understood. And beyond that, of course, speaking in a way that shows our compassion, shows our love, shows our concern. It's not just wailing away, beating them on the head with the Bible until they cave. No matter what we say, if we say it without love, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 verse 1, I'm just a sounding gong or clanging cymbal. It doesn't accomplish anything. You can't. There's no great gong solos in classical music. You just don't hear that very much. It's it, it's a, an accent maybe, but it's not a note. It's not a sound. It's not a, a a song. If we are to communicate effectively, it needs to be communicating out of love. They need to see that love, hear that love. It needs to be in our voice. It needs to be in our eyes. It needs to be in the way that we conduct ourselves at all times. Our timeliness, our compassion, our patience. In all things, we make sure that we communicate in a way that we will be understood. It would be awful if we were to find out that we had a bad influence on somebody else. If our message was was slurred, if our message was misunderstood simply because we did not take the proper time and effort to be understood properly. I'd hate to look back a lifetime later and say, if only I had spoken just a little bit more precisely, what a difference it would have made in the world. Anyway, that's what I've been hearing. If you would have stopped listening at this point and go your way, I hope you've found the message instructive, inspiring, and most of all, faithful to God's word. Please don't forget to like, rate, share, subscribe, and follow. But if you stick around for a few more minutes, I would like to share with you a way to amuse yourself in a wholesome manner while waiting here in Satan's world, and perhaps pick up a spiritual point or two in the process. This is what I've been playing. Have you ever dreamed of being a mogul of industry in pre-industrial Japan? Yeah, me neither. But I do love Yokohama. It's one of my very favorite games, yet another one of these games that is wonderful to play and I can't seem to win very often. At any rate, Yokohama is about being a captain of industry. You're trying to exert 
strength in the city of Yokohama. And that means by exerting influence in various parts of town. Maybe it's the, the rice paddy, or maybe it is the tea plantation, or maybe it's the, the fishmonger, or the, the copper mine, or wherever it happens to be, the customs office, the bank, employment office. There are various places where you can go. And you show the influence that you're dropping by dropping cubes, like your Hansel and Gretel, dropping bread crumbs everywhere. And you have to drop in a line because you're walking through the streets and you go wherever you go and you touch the lives of people who, who you walk past. And wherever you drop a, a cube, you increase your influence in that area. And the more cubes you have, the stronger in action you're able to take once you actually go there. I hope that makes it sound a little bit thematic. It doesn't feel really like you're a feudal uh, monarch or lord in the in ancient Japan, but that's the way it's supposed to work. And in a sense, it kind of does work because the influence that you exert is based directly on how much energy, how much time, how much attention you give to that particular place. And if you spend a lot of influence there, then you're going to be able to have a very effective action once you finally get around to, to acting in that particular place. And you can't have any kind of an impact where you don't have any influence. And I was thinking about that uh, the other day and thinking about the influence that we have, the, the trail that we leave as we go through life, the people that we touch, the impact that we have or do not have, as the case may be. And how it is a very real thing that we as Christians live our lives in the world, dropping little cubes of influence wherever we happen to be. Hopefully good influence. Hopefully we're making a mark for good. In Matthew chapter 5, in verse 13 and following, Jesus describes this process. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a, bush, a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. He's saying here that your whole purpose here in this life, here on earth, is to exert influence, to make a difference, a difference for good. Now, you're going to make an influence one way or the other. Uh, all this talk about being a role model that uh, whether you're a good role model or bad role model, I don't want to be a role model at all. That's that's a, a pointless argument. You are going to be an influence. You're going to be a role model for somebody. You just have to decide what kind of a role model and how good you want that role model to be. If you're going to be a Christian, if you're going to wear the name of Jesus Christ, it is incumbent upon you to do that in a proper and meaningful and impactful sort of way. And that means that whoever you touch in this life, whoever you come in contact with, you make a difference in those people's lives. So think about the, the people that you see, the people at the grocery store, the people at the dry cleaner, the people at the restaurant, the, the person that you meet uh, online at the, at the airport, wherever it happens to be. Are you leaving a trail for Jesus? Are you treating people with respect? Are you treating people with kindness? Are you treating people with decency? Is the world a better place because of your impact? You know, I, I'm a real nut about litter, and I have been ever since I can remember. If I see a scrap of paper on the ground in the public park or whatever, I'll probably pick it up. It just drives me crazy that, that people would would clutter up the, the world for everybody else just because they're too lazy to take up after themselves. I was always taught growing up that you leave a place cleaner than you found it. And surely that should be our mantra as Christians, that we should leave the world a better place than it was before we came. 
that the influence that we had, the difference that we made, the lives that we touched, these people are better off because of our impact in their lives, because of the little cubes of influence that we dropped wherever we happened to go. And when we chose to get involved, directly involved in these people's lives, we were able to make a positive impact, a real impact, because we had a relationship, because we had clout, we had impact with these people, because we had tried to have impact. What a wonderful thing it would be if we as Christians took this responsibility seriously, that wherever we went, we dropped little cubes for the Lord, and particularly dropped little cubes of the gospel, planting the seed as we go. Like the, the sower in Matthew chapter 13, the, the man who goes out and sows the seed, and, and it goes wherever it goes. Wherever the sower goes, he plants seed. And some of it just sloshes out of his bag while he walks, just because that's who he is. He's so full of the gospel, it spreads regardless of whether he's trying to do it or not. That needs to be our attitude also. Wherever we go, Jesus goes. It is no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me, Jesus, or Paul says rather in Galatians 2 verse 20. If that is the case, that means that Jesus is going where I go. If I've clothed myself with Christ, Galatians 3 verse 27, that means wherever people see me, they see Jesus. And so that means that when I'm salting the earth, when I am lighting the world, that means that the world looks a little bit more like Jesus because of my involvement in it. Now, that can sound very intimidating. I'm not going to be perfect by any means. My light's going to flicker from time to time. My salt is going to become spoiled from time to time. But because I serve a gracious and loving Lord, one who is building me up and encouraging me and teaching me and lifting me up all the time. I can work it so that my light gets a little bit brighter, that my salt gets a little bit saltier, that I become more and more of a force for good, a force for righteousness in the world. Not because it brings some kind of glory to me, but because I'm determined to allow people to see me and see Jesus living in me and glorify our Father who is in heaven. That's our role as Christians. We cannot escape it. We shouldn't want to escape it. It's our job to be an influence, not for our own glory, but for his glory. And may Jesus give us time and opportunity to have a massive, positive impact for good with the time that he gives us here in Satan's world. Anyway, that's what I've been playing. Thank you for listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. If you've profited from your time here, I have a few requests of you. Please pray for me and for this work. We need more citizens of heaven. And our prayer is that we be part of achieving this objective. Please subscribe to this podcast and give a good rating on iTunes and other sites that allow you to do such things and spread the word to your friends. Please follow my work through my website, www.halhammons.com. There you'll find links to articles, videos, and books of mine. Seek me out on social media. You can find me on Instagram, YouTube, and especially Facebook. Look for me and for my pages, The Final Word, The Preacher, 20 Pages a Week, and Citizen of Heaven. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, the Citizen of Heaven, signing off.